Okay, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 6 specifically. This is one of the most uh, significant portions, I think, of the Scripture, of the New Testament. As we look at this model prayer of Jesus, it's often been called the Lord's Prayer, but it's really a disciple's prayer. It's a model prayer. Jesus' prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is, as we've looked at before, is really John chapter 17, where Jesus intercedes and prays not only for himself, but for his disciples and then everyone else that their lives would be impacted by. And that's really Jesus' prayer, the Lord's Prayer. But as we look at this prayer this morning, I want to encourage you with a few things before we get started. You know, the Lord hears your prayer. Whenever we pray, God is looking for an honest heart. And so whenever we come to him in honesty and in, in, in sincerity, the Lord is going to hear us. We, we know that that is true. But as is so often, it's very easy for us to allow distractions and other things to get in the way of this communion, really, with God. And so I would be willing to say, for myself and for all of us, uh, there's room for improvement. It, again, it's not that God doesn't hear your prayer. I remember uh, when Pastor Jeff would do a series on prayer, and, and they were wonderful. But then, um, and it wasn't his fault, but many people would come away from a thing like that and, and, and begin to get really discouraged because they, you know, they hear all these exhortations about our attitudes of prayer, how we should pray, and things that we should consider that you can tend to get discouraged. And my hope and intention, and the Lord's intention, is not to discourage you, but rather to encourage you. Think of this model prayer as a, as a way to kind of break out of maybe the things that you're thinking about, maybe to help you in your organization of prayer. And whether you do this in the, in the order that is here before us that we're going to look at this morning, whether you do that in that order or not, look at those elements and, and dissect them and look at what they really talk about. And we're going to look at some of those things. So whether you get those things mixed around, I don't know that it's necessarily that big of a deal. But I would say that starting off with worship is the best. I mean, that's really why we worship before our time together in the Word. It's not just a warm-up act for the message. No, the, all of this is important. It, it's not just the prelude to the, what we're really here for. No, that we're here for this. We're here for this, but we're also here for this. You follow me? So worship is not just a warm-up act for the, for the main act. That's not what it's about. It's all, it's all important. And we need to think of it like that because the church in America, unfortunately, we got such a warped view of worship. We really don't know what worship really is. Maybe you do, and maybe that doesn't affect any of you, but for the church at large, we really don't know what worship is. And the truth is, is how we respond to worship, even in our audible singing, in our worship and singing. Because there are some churches that if they don't have the lights and the band's not hot and everything is happening and there's people walking around with, you know, television things and it's all streamed and, you know, going to several countries and everything is just so... It, God doesn't need any of that. There's nothing wrong with that, I guess. But if your idea of worship is big and lights and more music, more sound, and if none of that's happening, then we really didn't worship. No, that's not it at all. We've totally missed it. It's not about us. But as we get into this, do not please, do not get discouraged. Take it as a way, as an injection for you to be encouraged, and also maybe to just rethink some things, because again, God is hearing your prayer. But for myself, sometimes I need a little nudge. Sometimes I need something to keep me on track, because if you're like me, my mind is always going. Sometimes even when I lay down at night, my brain doesn't want to shut off. My body's going, good grief, unplug. But my brain's like, no way. I'm going to keep you up till 2 o'clock in the morning thinking about tomorrow. And thinking about things. And don't let, the, don't let yourself do that. Don't let your own feelings, certainly don't let the enemy do that. So take this as a means to encourage you. 
And so let's reread verses 5 through 7. Remember in chapter 6, Jesus spoke of the Pharisees only doing things so that they might be seen of people. And he said that they have their reward. They have their reward if that was their intention. But notice in verse 5 what he says to us. He says, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. So Jesus is basically calling these religious leaders, these scribes, these Pharisees, hypocrites. And yes, they were because they were just going through the motions. Has anybody done that? In your life, just kind of going through the motions? Yes, we all do it from time to time. And he says, don't be like them. Don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets. And here's their motivation, that they might be seen by men. And Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you that they have the reward. But you, when you go and pray, when you pray, not if you pray, but when you pray, Go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. We know that many words and, and, and all of these things, that it, it really doesn't get the job done. God would rather have one sincere word from you than a thousand that are just trying to impress somebody, impress him or maybe others in the room. We don't need to impress anybody. He is really impressed by a heart that can just say, you know what, Lord, I'm really struggling. I don't even know what it is. Have you ever done, has it ever happened to you where you're just down in the mouth and you don't really know why it is? There may be several things that are working against you but you really don't know what it is, but you're like, Lord, I just feel so out of place. There's something wrong. <laughs> don't worry. You just go to the Lord. Notice in verse 8, he says, therefore, do not be like them. Don't be like them. Therefore, as a result of what he, the Lord has just spoken to us in verses 5 through 7, and that is the hypocrisy of those religious leaders, don't be like them. They were stage actors. They were play actors. Hippocrates is actually the Greek word, and you, you've heard this spoken a number of times, but it was in the old Greek dramas where you'd see the people with the different faces, the smiley face and then the sad face, and they would hold this thing like, like a popsicle stick, and they'd walk around on the, on the play, and they'd be dressed in black, and they would go like this, and you would see these different expressions on the face. That's exactly what the word is, because behind that mask is somebody who is either happy or sad, and that little placard that they're showing in front may not be the reality of what is really happening and who they really are. And God says, I hate that. I'd rather you come before me and just be who you are. Because he hates it when we are not genuine. Jesus said in Matthew 23, he said to the, um, to the disciples, notice what he said, he says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not. And so we're not to be like those hypocrites. God wants you to be a genuine. He wants you to be the genuine article. And let me ask you this morning, are you genuine? Are we genuine? Is there enough things in our life that the Lord can look down upon or other people can peer into our lives and say, you know, there's the real thing. And that's, I don't have that. Or, or maybe I want to ascribe to that. I want to get to that place, but I'm not quite there. Can people do that to us? Can they say that about us? Ought we not to be those ambassadors, those models for people around us and for each other? We really do. We need to hold that up and not lower the bar. In Christianity today, the bar is really low, and we need to raise it again. Not in some kind of ritual, not in some kind of legalism, no, but raise the bar, because the bar is supposed to be high. And we can't attain that, can we, in our own flesh? But we can let Christ work in and through us. 
right? So look, looking on at, at verse 8 there, notice what he says, for your father knows the things that you ha- have need of before you ask him. So you may be thinking, well, if the Lord does know the things that we need before we ask, then why do I even bother praying? Well, it's about the relationship, isn't it? It's about the relationship. God is not a genie's lamp. Many people have this idea that God is just this thing that you can pull out whenever you need him. And if you'd rub it really hard and, and, and say a few nice words and maybe even have the rosary wrapped around your toes while you're doing it, you know, maybe just, maybe, you know, maybe I can get something to happen, right? <laughs> God is not a genie's lamp. He's not there just to give you good things, provide good circumstances, to give you food and shelter and good health. He's not a rabbit's foot. He's not a talisman to ward away evil. God wants to have a loving relationship with you. And even if it seems like everybody else around you doesn't want to have that relationship with you, God wants to have it with you. Regardless of how worthy or unworthy you may feel. I never feel worthy to be before God. Most often I feel unworthy And that's a good thing. But you know what? God says, bring, come to me when you're feeling that way. You can come to the Lord when you're feeling unworthy. Does anybody feel unworthy today? Like you just don't meet the mark. You're not standing up. You're not meeting that place. We could probably all say, yeah, that's true of me. But the Lord is not pushing you away. Your pride might push you away. You may think, well, I'm not good enough. Well, that's true. None of us are good enough. But come before the Lord because he, that's when you need him the most. And he wants to bless you. He wants to encourage you. And see, it doesn't matter whether you feel unworthy. God and only God, because he's omniscient, he is capable of knowing your needs, isn't he, before you even ask? No one else can do this. What does it tell us in Isaiah In Isaiah 48, verses 3, it says, I have declared the former things from the beginning... The Lord speaking, of course, that they went forth from my mouth and I caused them to hear it, but suddenly I did them and they came to pass. And because I knew that they were obstinate and your neck, or that you were obstinate, excuse me, and your neck was an iron sinew and your brow bronze, even from the beginning I have declared it to you. And here it is, before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you. Lest any of you should say, my idol has done them, and my carved image and my molded image have commanded them. See, God knows what you have need before you ask them. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 139. It's one of my favorite places in all of the scripture. And it's one of those places that you can go to to be reminded of God's omniscience, that he's all-powerful, and also his omnipresence, that he's in all places at once. He'll never leave your side. Notice in Psalm 139, we're just going to look at the first 12 verses, but this is a psalm of David. Notice what he says. O Lord, you have searched me, and you've known me. You you know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down, and you're acquainted with all of my ways. And for there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether." You have hedged me behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? And see, these are all rhetorical questions, but the answer is still the same. Nowhere. Where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from you, Lord? Where can I go from your spirit? Is there anywhere? And God is going, no. And David had that understanding. He said in verse 8, If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day, and the darkness and the light are both alike to you. So is there anything that God can't see? Is there anything that God doesn't know? Is he shocked by what you said yesterday? Is he shocked by what you thought a few moments ago? About why is that pastor wearing pink? Is he struggling with his gender? No. 
No, there's, there's no gender issues here. <laughs> Isn't it true that he knows what we ask before we ask him? And God has given us things that we didn't ask for. But there are certain things that he wants us to ask. Because if we don't ask, we may not receive. Remember in Matthew 7, what Jesus said in verse 7, he said this to his disciples, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven, who is in heaven, will give good gifts to those who ask? Those who ask him. Have you really asked the Lord for anything? Are you asking him for anything? See, God's heart is to bless you. It's not to vex you. It's not to ruin your enjoyment of life, much to what many teenagers think today. Well, God just wants to ruin my fun. I want to go out and have fun. Well, if your idea of having fun is to, is to do things that are going to um, uh, hurt you and what everybody else is doing, the drugs, the sex, the alcohol, the parties, if that's what you think freedom really is, well, you're sadly mistaken. It's bondage. I know because I used to Flirt with all of that. And I can tell you, standing here, all that stuff did was put me in more bondage and make me feel even worse about who I am. Oh, but it made, I had a lot of friends for a while because we were all born of this sin nature and we all like to do it together. But there's no, but God doesn't want to bless you because those aren't the things that He wants to bless you with because it isn't a blessing. He wants to bless you with good things. He really does. He wants to bless you with good things. And I can tell you, if you let the Lord get a hold of your life, he wants to give you good things. And the things that he's got to give you, there's no regret, there's no pain. <laughs> the problem with many people is that they, they have a warped view of what enjoyment is. But true enjoyment is being free from sin and the effects of it. True enjoyment is being in fellowship with Jesus Christ, having a relationship with him. In John chapter 16... Jesus, at the Last Supper, uh, spoke to his disciples, and he says, I say to you, whatever you ask, the Father in my name, and there's the, there's the clause you want to underline, whatever you ask in my name, in the Father's name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked me nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Yes, he knows what you're going to ask before you ask him, but are you asking? Are you afraid to ask? And maybe you're afraid to ask for this reason. Jesus' half-brother James in chapter 4, verses 1, he says, where, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask amiss that, you're, that you may spend it on your pleasures. And so when we ask and we don't receive, maybe there's a good reason for that. Remember many years ago, Janis Joplin in her song, she said, Lord, why don't you give me a Mercedes Benz? Well, Janet, if I gave you a Mercedes Benz, it would destroy you even further. (laughs) That's why. Because you put your faith and your trust in that Mercedes Benz and how it made you feel And it was an inflated feeling to have things that puff you up and make you feel important, make you feel like somebody in society. All that stuff is just puffing you up. It's not going to do anything for you. But our motive and God's will is everything when we do ask. And the Lord is, he's the God of the here and now. He wants for us to come to him with our needs. And as a loving heavenly father, he is happy to help. Think about this, parents, when your son or your daughter comes to you asking for help. I don't know about you, but I love it when my daughter asks me for help. Because usually, teenagers know everything. Right? And they'll say, well, I know how to do that, I know how to do that. But I love it when my daughter will say, you know what, Dad, I'm having a trouble here. Could you help me with this? I am so glad to help. I'm so glad to help anybody if I can, especially a young person. Why wouldn't I do that? And, if you, and me, being a, a sinful person, unlike God, who is perfect, 
Don't you think he loves it when we come to him with our sincere needs? And do we ask? And is our motive pure in what we're asking for? And if it is, then you have those petitions that, you know, to request it. And in God's time, he will give it to you if that is his will. And that's the, the rub in the road. But see, it's far more meaningful for God to help us when we understand our need and we cry out to him, rather than for him just to swoop down before we even know that we have a need and fix it so that we never cry out. It's something about the crying out to him and all of that. And then it also encourages my faith because when I pray in earnest about something and he helps me, what happens? My faith grows. Because I know he heard me. And every one of us in this room has had something where you've prayed and God has done it and it's encouraged your faith because you're like, there's no way that this could have been just happenstance. This couldn't have been just circumstance. No, it's almighty God. How many times has this happened to you? It's happened to me many times. But the Lord is faithful. That's one of his attributes. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9 it says, God is faithful. In fact, he's the only faithful one. So as we get into this model prayer, uh, Jesus actually, later on in his ministry, in Luke chapter 11, in the first four verses, he taught this very same prayer to his disciples again. So you might want to just write down Luke 11 in the margin right here next to verse 9. So let's just get right into it. Notice what Jesus says, in this manner or in this way, in this way, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Notice that there's an acknowledgement first of who it is that we're speaking to. And we're speaking to the one who created all things. And notice that it's worship. It begins with the word hallowed, which is a Greek word, hagiadso, and it means to make holy or to venerate. And this is why, again, we start our services and often even our prayer meetings in worship. It starts off with worship. David in Psalm 138 says, I will praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods, lowercase g, I will sing praises to you, God, almighty God, the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name. Why? For your loving kindness and your truth. And I love this phrase. One of my favorite phrases in all the Bible in Psalm 138, verse 2. For you have magnified your word above all of your name. Do you get, did you get that? You have magnified your word above all of your name. So if his name is to be hallowed, and it is, shouldn't his word be as well that we hold in our laps, bound in leather? Shouldn't his word be? It's amazing to me how irreverent people can be when they speak to God. You know, they speak of God as the, you know, the man upstairs. Yeah, my buddy upstairs. You know, and, and they can get this familiarity. There's a, a familiarity oftentimes breeds contempt. When we become so familiar with something that we stop, we, we stop remembering what that person is that we're speaking to, and it's so easy to do that. And we, do, we can do that with God. And people can be too cavalier about speaking to God as if he's you know, their, their best friend and their father and their, their, their love and their savior. And all of that is true and it's good, but we also need to remember that God is holy. <laughs> and I need to approach him not as this, uh, you know, someone I can just, you know, flippantly. Uh, do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, he is that personal, don't get me wrong. But our hearts in that comfortability with him, we, we also need to remember who he really is. Because when I lose my fear of God, it's an invitation to all kinds of other sin. I get so comfortable that I, yes, you can crawl up into your father's lap. Yes, he is your savior. Yes, he is your friend. He's a friend that sticks closer to a brother. All of those things are true. But begin your time as this model prayer starts off with, as often as you can, just exalting, praising God for who he is, what he is already doing for you, and what he is yet to do. Worship and acknowledge him before you bring your prayer list to him. Think of how rude it would be for you to go before a magistrate, and even before you properly address them, you start in with your wishes and your complaints. Think of it. Going before a magistrate, and before you even acknowledge anything, you're immediately just bombarding them with your list of complaints and your list of, of things that you, that you want to, to happen. 
demands that only they can, um, that they can do. Nehemiah, we, you know, even men in court positions didn't do this. Remember when Nehemiah stood before Artaxerxes Langemanus, uh, while things back in Jerusalem, now here's Nehemiah in, 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 um, in a, um, he's in Babylon, and he knows what's happening back home, how everything is burned and everything is a mess back home. And he appears before the king, Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes says to him, you know, what's the matter, uh, Nehemiah? You, you, you look, what's with the long face? I've never seen you appear before me with a long face. And it says that he was very afraid then, Nehemiah. He became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, may the king live forever. <laughs> may the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when my city, the city, the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? But notice, even in his sorrow of heart, when the king questions him, he doesn't say, well, you know, you're the one that, with all the money. Why can't you help me out? No, he says reverently, the king, may the king live forever. He acknowledges who he is before. And even Bathsheba, King David's wife, it's records for us, it records for us in 1 Kings chapter 1 that Bathsheba went into the chamber of the king and Abishag, the Shunammite, was serving the king. And Bathsheba, yes, David's wife, she bowed and did homage to the king. His own wife comes in before him and bows before the king. And the king said, what is your wish? And then she said to him, my lord, you swore to the Lord your God, to your maidservant, saying, assuredly, Solomon shall sit on your throne after you. So there was a dispute about Adonijah and Solomon, and, and it was very obvious that Solomon was the one. But she's, she comes and she bows before him and even calls him Lord, lowercase l. And if this is true of men on the throne, shouldn't we reverence the Lord even more? Who is even greater than man? Notice in verse 10, back in our text, it says, Your kingdom come. This is nothing but anticipation and longing. Your kingdom come, Lord. It's not just, uh, this is not only speaking, I believe, of the rapture of the church, because that, that's coming to us very soon, but even more clearly and specifically, it's speaking of the thousand-year reign of Christ, which is yet to come upon the earth after the, after the rapture of the church, after the tribulation period, and then finally when Christ comes back to the earth with all of his saints from heaven, you and I, your kingdom come, may that day come. Do you long for it? The saints of the Old Testament long for that day. They long for the day when the Messiah would return to the earth. Are you longing for the kingdom of God to come on this earth? Are you longing for the new heavens? Not only the millennial reign, but even beyond that, in Revelation 21, it says that there's going to be a new heavens, a new earth, and even a new Jerusalem, and we're going to be dwelling there forever. Do you long for that? I long for that. What about some of these conditions of the millennium? Just to whet your appetite a little bit here. What does it say in Isaiah chapter 2? It'll come to pass in the latter days that the mountains of the Lord's house, the mountain of the Lord's house, shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn more anymore. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a really great idea. Great, a great idea and a great thing. I imagine the people in the Ukraine and the people in Russia right now are thinking, I can't wait for that. Many of the believers in those countries are longing for that day because they're seeing it right now in all of its ugliness. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. These natural enemies, these natural predators. Think of it. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. A little child will lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. 
Their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. They're not going to be omniv- or carnivorous like they were. They're going to be eating straw together and enjoying it. Can you imagine that day, folks? Do you long for that day? The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. For you moms, won't that be nice? You don't have to worry about, you know, you don't have to worry about anything really here in New York State, but down in Florida, you'd better worry because I remember one day my, my brother and I were playing with an eight-foot diamondback rattlesnake, and my mom found out about it. We called her, and she, and she, she says, well, what are you guys up to? And, oh, Rich and I are playing with this diamondback rattler we found. The, it was dead, don't, don't get me wrong, but it's still, you know, it was a very large snake, and we're playing with it. See, I was already thinking, millennium thinking, not. I was a scoundrel. I was a scoundrel. <laughs> and Zechariah says, In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bulls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judea shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. And everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day there shall be no longer a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Do you long for that? Or are you comfortable with earth? Are you comfortable with things that are happening right now? Are you like, you know, I want more of this. This is so awesome. I just love it. Is anybody really honestly happy in the sense of, you know, the, the chaos that's all around us? Is anyone going, I, I, I just, I love this place. I love everything that's happening. Is anybody really there? Do you have a longing? Your kingdom come, that's the idea. Notice, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As Christians, we ought to desire and longs for God's will to be done here as it is in heaven. Do we want the will of God to be done here? Do we know what the will of, the God, uh, the will of God is? Do we understand what that is? And how will we know the will of God if we don't read his word? By reading the entire Bible, you discern the Lord's will in a general sense. And then when we pray in the relationship that we have with Christ, we learn to discern God's will specifically for our lives. So is adultery, is, is fornication, is homosexuality, men dressing like women and having family friendly drag shows at the local library, is that God's will? That's what happened back in Sodom and Gomorrah before God lit it up. And destroyed it. And it's looking like that more and more every day, doesn't it? What does it tell us in Luke? As it was in the days of Noah, so it shall also be in the days of the Son of Man. As we uh, approach this time of when the Lord returns, they ate and they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was business as usual. And he goes on, likewise, as it was in the days of Lot who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. They ate and they drank and they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on that day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from them, from God to them, upon them and destroyed them all. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is it God's will that young people be given puberty blockers and having mutilate, being mutilated with gender surgery? Because that's what's happening in our world right now. No, it's not. And guess what? I have all authority from heaven, and the word of God is my authority. And that is true. We have the authority from God that that is not his will. What does it tell us in Matthew But whoever causes any one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, God says, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. But woe, for for offenses must come, but woe to to that man or woman by whom the offense comes. This is happening. Is it God's will? And how do we know what God's will is? You read the word of God. And let them make fun of you, folks. Let the educated, let the PhDs from Harvard and Princeton, let them laugh at you for your belief in this. Who cares what they think? This is the word of God. This is the authority. Amen? 
It is. And is it my feeling? Is it something that I've made up? No, it's been in here for hundreds of years, even a few thousand years, and it's here, and it's very applicable to what's going on today. No one should ever be able to shake your confidence from the Word of God based on some PhD in Harvard who got his you know, doctorate in, in gender studies. I don't care what they think. They need to repent. <laughs> or God will send them straight to hell. And especially for touching these kids. And the parents... You better think twice about what you're doing to your kids. Your teenager is unstable. They don't even really know what's going on at that age. Most teenagers don't. Are you going to make those lifelong decisions and ruin their life and cause the suicide rate to be even higher? Yes, it's on your shoulders. And you'd better be careful because God will hold you accountable. And if, if you don't confess and repent, he will send you straight to hell. I don't really, you know, I can't tell if you know there's any emotion here. But it's true, isn't it? It's true. But Jesus goes on, so the will of God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he goes on, he says, give us this day our daily bread. And this is petition or supplication. You know, in, uh, in John chapter, First uh, John, it says, and we know that he hears us. And whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So we know that this is, give us this day our daily bread is nothing more than supplication. And notice the pronouns here that it's us, and it's not just my. Notice throughout this prayer that we're looking at that it's not just about the individual, but it's about the whole, the whole context is really the body of Christ, isn't it? So as we pray for ourselves, let's keep in mind the whole body of Christ as well, for we are one family. We are the church, aren't we? We're made of one family, one tribe, or you know, uh, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. We're like the International House of Pancakes. We're all, all there. And there's nothing wrong with praying for personal things, don't get me wrong, but sometimes my prayers can get very self-centered. It's all about me and my needs, and I forget to pray about others and be other-centered. It would really behoove us to do that. Can anyone say amen to that? Because I know it's true of myself. But notice what Paul tells us in Philippians. He says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let each of you look not, not only on the things of his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Well, that's a novel concept. It takes self out of the equation. The more you think about yourself, the more miserable you're going to be. But here's a secret. The more you think about others, you don't have time to think about yourself. And what a wonderful secret that is. Because if all i got to do is think about myself, I'm going to get pretty miserable. Then I'm just going to sit on and watch TV and watch Oprah and become even more depressed. Give us this day our daily bread. Notice that we only need to be concerned about today. God will take care of tomorrow. Notice, give us this day. Probably the best scripture for this is what we're going to get to in a few weeks. But notice what Jesus said. He said, but seek first the kingdom of God. Don't worry about those things. God is going to take care of you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Yes, the, the food and the clothing, the things that we need. God knows that you have need of those things. He's promised to provide for you for those things. So blessed, or but seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Isn't that true? Are you one of those people who worries about everything and everything you're just worrying about and you're, all it does is produce spiritual and mental anguish? You're, you have stomach ulcers and you find yourself actually um, boosting the market share of Tums because you're always taking Tums because of all of the anxiousness that you have? And yet, what does the scripture tell us? Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, notice, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. This is a verse that we really need to take seriously. 
especially today, because many in the church are losing their heart over the things that they can't, uh, the things that are going on, the things they can't control. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't worry about the economy. Don't worry about these things. I remember back during Y2K, there was this movement in the church where people were buying K rations and they were buying property in, in, in the hills, you know, in Colorado, and people were flipping out, thinking that, and then it came and it went. Now, don't get me wrong, we may go through hard times, but listen, none of us are going to starve. We're not going to starve. God's going to take care of us. And if you do hoard a bunch of food, what are you going to do when your neighbor who doesn't know Christ comes to you? What are you going to do? Be stingy? I'm not going to give to you. And you're the believer. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus Christ, the, yesterday, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, do we see an Old Testament example of this, give us this day our daily bread? Yes, we do. In Exodus 16, remember that God told the Israelites that they could gather daily as much manna as they could, have, that they could for their own needs that day. They weren't to hoard it because it would, it would disintegrate. It would, become, uh, it would start to stink and grow worms and everything like that. So it was good for the day. The example is right there before us, even in the Old Testament. He says, I'm going to give you your daily bread. Don't you worry. I'm going to give you your daily bread. And then on the sixth day, he said, gather twice as much because on, on, on Saturday or Sunday, I want you to not gather anything. And they did so. And he provided for them. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So in addition to worship, Lord, hallowed be your name. In addition to the anticipation and the supplication, give us this day our daily bread. There's also confession and forgiveness, isn't there? This word debts here is something that is owed. And, and metaphorically, it can also mean a sin. And we see this later on in Jesus' ministry uh, in uh, Luke chapter 11. Jesus, it's recorded for us, it says... He says, and forgive us our sins. The word is the Greek hamartia. It's missing the mark. So that's what it means. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins, but as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Forgive us our debts. And based on what we're going to see in, the next, in verses 14 and 15, we're going to see that this is a conditional statement. He, God puts a high price on forgiveness, for he alone knows the value of it, because he gave his only begotten son for to make us heirs of heaven because of what Christ would do. So he knows the cost. He knows the cost. And what is the promise? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice again the condition. If we, then he is faithful. Notice the, do you see the condition? There is a condition. If we confess, then he forgives. If we forgive others, he will forgive us. Boy, we don't really like that. It's kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? That means there's a condition here because if I'm one of those people who harbors unforgiveness, God is saying, I'm not going to forgive you. I'm going to break your heart until you finally get to the place where you realize how you're treating other people. After all that I've done for you, how much have I forgiven you? Oh my goodness. After all that I've done for you and you're still going to hold a grudge? He put such a high value on forgiveness. And he, he commands us to forgive others as he forgives us. Perhaps a good way to read it is this. Forgive me as I forgive, fill in the blank, whoever that person is, that you're struggling with right now. It could be a family member. It could be a friend. Is there someone in your life that you haven't forgiven? You're holding a grudge. Anybody holding a grudge today, I would encourage you to let it go. Let it go because what is it going to do? You're either going to get bitter or you're going to get better. And if you continue to hold the grudge, you are going to get bitter and more bitter and more bitter to the point when you get in your 80s, you're just going to be this little raisin sitting in your chair just angry and you're, you're, even your dog bites you because he can't stand you. Even your little chihuahua, your little shih tzu is going to start biting you because you're cantankerous, old, and nasty because you've got an unforgiving heart. 
And you've allowed it to infect everything. It's like a, it's like a cancer that has just eaten you apart. And everyone around you doesn't like to be around you either because your, your heart is filled with unforgiveness and bitterness. Is that you? I hope it's none of us. But I know that this is true. Are you still holding a grudge? And do, not let us, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The King James Version says, deliver us from evil, but it's more accurately translated, deliver us from the evil one. And this is, the prayer here is, is that uh, God might um, deliver us from getting into the place of being tempted. But we have to understand that God is not the one who tempts us, is he? In James it says, let no one when he is tempted say, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted, notice, when he is drawn away by his own desires and he's enticed. And God will allow our faith to be tried and tested, isn't it true? But he does not tempt us. God is in the business of refining and teaching you, but not destroying you. And there is the difference. We are the ones who flirt with temptation, and the devil is always there to fan those flames. Proverbs you know, warns us about it. Can a man take fire into his bosom and not be, have his clothes burned? You know, there's something about this old nature of mine that likes to get as close as I can to the line without actually falling into the ditch and falling into sin. We do. We like to get, and you've heard of me use this, you know, when you, young kids, there's no filter. You tell a child, no, don't touch that hot stove. And they got the lollipop in their mouth and they're thinking, why not? Don't touch the hot stove. The mother's going, because it's going to burn your hands. Honey, it's going to burn your hands, but don't touch the stove. It's red hot. And then you get the, the child starts to cry, and the mother's like, I told you. I told you. Why didn't you listen? Do you not know that I love you? I told you the truth so you wouldn't get hurt. And see, God is pleading with people today. Listen to me, says the Lord. Listen to me. Be obedient. But do we want to flirt with the edge? Do we want to get right to the edge? Do we want to, you know, the, the Bible tells us in James to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Jesus resisted the devil and the devil left him. But if we flirt with sin, we're going to get bit by the effects of it. And God's desire is to help us, but we need to give, we need to not give the devil any room in our will to accomplish anything. And what does Corinthians tell us? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And when we are tempted, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. We bring temptation oftentimes on ourselves, but when we are tempted, it's not by God. But he'll use the devil, he will allow the devil to do those things, to do those things that your faith, that, you're, that you'll be tested but it doesn't originate from God. But Jesus understands what it's like to be tempted. He was in all points tested, and, or um, tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then in Matthew 4, we know this, we've already looked at it, Jesus being tempted of the devil in the desert. In the, in the Judean wilderness, and he went after him with the big three, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. They always seem to work. So it's good that we should say, Lord, deliver me from temptation. Deliver me from even the, the possibility of it, of it happening. But notice what it says in Matthew 4, verse 11, when Jesus was tempted. It says, after the temptation, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. In Luke chapter 11, or Luke chapter 4, excuse me, it says that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Do you understand what that means? That means that for a season he left, but he's coming back again. But had anybody noticed that? That when you resist sin, that the devil always comes back? 
And what are you going to do? Are you going to cave in? The more you cave in, the more you're not going to resist him the second, third, fourth, fifth time, but you've got to resist him. What does Peter tell us? Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And if that is the case, I better really be careful because he is always on the move. And those fallen angels, those devils, are always working as well. But you keep fighting the good fight of faith, and you keep resisting. The more you do it, the more you'll be able to resist. But if you keep caving in, you're just adding fuel to the fire. And do not lead us. Notice the pronoun again. And that's really what intercession is, isn't it? When you're praying for somebody else. Lord, lead us, not just me, but my brothers and sisters as well. Lord, forgive and, and, and don't lead so-and-so, Lord. I know the decision they're about to make. We've talked about it on the phone, Lord. They're about ready to make this decision. Lord, don't let them be tempted. Don't let them go into that place. And, and that's what intercession is. And intercession is when you intercede on the behalf of somebody else. And who was the greatest intercessor of all time? It was none other than our Savior, Jesus. He was the greatest intercessor. Even in John 17, verse 5, what did he say? I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, Father, but that you should keep them from the evil one. And this is something that, church, we need to get back to because I can often, so often, my prayers are just self-focused. It's all about me, but i got to get out of myself and not allow all of my prayer time to be about me and what I need, but to really think about others. And to think about the, the corporately the body of Christ. Here, even in this fellowship, how often have you prayed for the corporate body here? Maybe you do every day, and praise the Lord for that. But it's something that we really need to look at again and say, Lord, I, I, I've been getting very self-centered in my prayer. It's been all about me and what I want. Notice at the end there of verse 13, all, and for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Notice, yours is the kingdom. The kingdom belongs to you and the power. All power belongs to you and the glory. All of the glory belongs to God. And we know this through Romans. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Yes. All the powers that be are ordained of God, even the ones we don't like. He's allowed them to be in place. And is your prayer life growing as a result of everything that we're seeing in our country? It ought to. It ought to grow. David said, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. He has founded it upon the waters, established it upon the seas. The earth is the Lord's. He is all-powerful. For thine is the kingdom. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Notice in verse 14, for if you forgive men their trespasses, and here is again uh, almost like a little addendum to what we learned earlier. If you forgive, there's the, 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 the conditional phrase again. Whenever you see that, it's conditional. Many things are unconditional. When God says he's going to do something, he can do it without you doing anything. The Bible is replete with those kinds of statements where God says, I'm going to do this regardless of your performance. But there are things that we ought to do that he says, if you do this, then I will do this. And those are the things, friends, that we need to really think about. I need to think about these things. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Notice conditional statements. And that's a hard thing to think, isn't it? It's a hard thing to read. But see, that's how important it is to forgive. That's the importance of forgiveness, my brothers and sisters. May there not be a heart of unforgiveness in us. If there is someone that you know has wronged you, or maybe you've wronged somebody else and you know that there's a grudge, how much better would your family be? 
In every single family that I've talked to, including my own, there are people that have said something wrong, done something wrong, and, and people haven't addressed it. They just they, Every year they get together for Thanksgiving. Every year they get together for Christmas, and there's always this underlying tension. I'd never forgive them for that. You know, two years ago he said this, and, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, back in 1975 she said this, and then, and then all of a sudden this whole thing is just ugh, still like a knot in your heart. Happy Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell rock. Everybody's getting in the spirit of Christmas when in our hearts we're harboring such nasty unforgiveness. Would you pray about doing something these next two holidays that we have coming up? Would you begin praying now about those family members, those aunts, uncles, whatever distance relations that you're going to come in contact with, that you know that they have a problem with you or you have a problem with them? Would you be willing to pray about doing the right thing? Most of us think, well, we don't want to mess up this event. Hey, you know what? Take the person out for a walk. Take them out, you know, because you need to walk, because after all that turkey, you're going to need to walk. So take them out for a walk and, and get it right. And say, you know what? I've been harboring something against you for years. And I just want to tell you I am so sorry. You said this. You did this back at this time. And I'm sorry, but I've just been a... I've hated you. Will you forgive me? And then you watch what that person does. They'll probably... Hopefully, they'll reciprocate and say, you know what, I felt the same thing. I could feel the tension between us. I didn't know what it was. I was always wondering what I did wrong around you, but now I know. Of course, I forgive you. Forgive me for doing such a careless thing, for saying such a careless thing, for doing such a careless act. Folks, we don't have much time left. Is it really worth harboring those things in your heart? Wouldn't God rather you have to just bury the hatchet in this thing? Get it done. Don't hold it. God won't allow us to continue in unforgiveness. He wants us to deal with it as soon as humanly possible. And what is the golden rule? We know this. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Getting close here to the end, and let me just read this to you. It says, Jesus, speaking of the parable to uh, his teaching about forgiveness, he says this. He says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when, it, when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment should be made. And the servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat saying pay me what you owe so his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying have patience with me and I will pay you all and notice he would not but he went and he threw him into prison till he should pay the debt and so when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. And then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So, that my, so my heavenly Father also will do to you, Jesus said, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. How significant is forgiveness? If you forgive men their trespasses, then God will forgive you. Yes, he does forgive you. And, 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 you know, but I think there's enough of an uncomfortability about this verse that don't just let it slide and go, well, I'm forgiven, I'm going to heaven. Yes, that may be true, but don't glide over this. Take it seriously. 
Because each one of us has perhaps some unforgiveness in our heart. I'd like to read to you something that a, a brother in Christ said many, many years ago. He was an English gentleman. He said, forgiveness means the restoration of something precious that has been broken. It means the discovering once again of something beautiful that was lost. It means knowing again a love that somehow has been broken. It is the reunion of that which life has allowed to become disjointed. It is harmony once again out of life's discord. It is the joy of companionship once again out of life's loneliness. It is life out of something sacred that we have allowed to die. It is faith and trust where there has been doubt, suspicion, and distrust. Yes, it is life's most beautiful word, and it has never been more beautiful than from the lips of Christ when he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So how important is it to forgive? And again, many of, this, many of us in this room have those issues of heart. So we need to take care of those things. Will you take care of those things? The Bible says that our life is but a breath. It's just a, a small little vapor and then eternity. And so shouldn't we get it right? Are you willing to swallow your pride? Even if you are the one being wronged, are you willing to go to the one who has wronged you, even though they haven't come to you yet? Are you willing to go to them? Say, I know you did something wrong to me, and I just want you to know that I forgive you. And would you forgive me for holding a grudge against you? <laughs> be surprised what will happen. You'd be surprised how that will change your family dynamics. And you may even be able to share Christ with them. That may be the moment that them knowing that you're a Christian, that may be the one moment where they can say, you know what, I'm willing to listen to you now. Up to this point, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And you can take them right to this verse, and you can say, you know what, the Lord has commanded me to, sh to share this with you, and I know that it's right to do, and that's why I'm here. And so even as we look at this model prayer, there are a lot of things in it, and so think about that as you go through and as you begin to pray. If you can use this as a model to help organize your prayer life, to keep your mind from wandering, to keep it somewhat organized, do it. Use it. Under each one of these headings, you can, you can spend 10 or 15 minutes or maybe a couple minutes. Spend your time worshiping. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, I pray for your will to be done in my life today in the lives of my friends and my family, Lord. May your will be done. And Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Help us, Lord, for the things that we need today, Lord. I don't even know what I have need. Our, our furnace may break down, and it did recently. You know, our furnace may break down, and I may need help in, you know, in fixing it and, and getting it fixed, the money to get it fixed. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Supply our needs, Lord. And forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins as we forgive others. Lord, you know how I've had a bitterness against so-and-so, Lord. They've hurt me. You know the situation, God. I'm, I'm angry. I don't ever want to talk to them again. And Lord, I know I'm wrong because I go to bed every night. And when I think of them, it just turns me sour. Would you forgive me, Lord, and help me to get it right the next time I see him? And then to remember, for yours is the kingdom. It all belongs to you. All power belongs to you. What a blessing, huh? Isn't it encouraging? Be encouraged in your prayer, folks. There's no magic formula. If there is a magic formula, here it is. If there's any formula at all, there it is. Use it as a springboard for your prayer life. And don't be discouraged. God has been hearing your prayer, and he's going to continue to hear your prayer. But join me in saying, Lord, I also know I, things could be doing much better than they are right now because 
I'm certainly not praying as often as I ought to. I certainly am praying very self-centeredly. And Lord, I'm very distracted. And Lord, I know that those things that you want me to, you want to help me in that because you want that more than I do. And I want it because I need it. I need you. If that, may, if that rings a true in your own heart, would you stand with me? Let's, let's, let's stand and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and Lord, we thank you for your, um, your encouragement, Lord, your exhortation to us today. Lord, even in this model prayer, we realize there's so much that we can be praying about within the, found, within the context of this model prayer. And Lord, would you change us that we would be men and women of prayer again and that we pray for others in addition to our own needs, but Lord, to look at the needs of others and to pray for our country, Lord, to pray for our kids and our grandkids, Lord, to pray for the government, those in authority over us, Lord, to pray for all these things. And Lord, deliver us from bitterness of heart and unforgiveness of heart and help us to come before you. Lay them at your feet and to get it right with our fellow man, Lord. Have your way with us today, Lord. Keep us safe. And thank you for your great love for us, Lord Jesus Christ. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.